Well, good morning. You're walking across the floor and you see a bug crawling across the floor. And it's a roach and you don't like roaches because they're kind of creepy and they, you know, they carry diseases. And, and it sees you and you see it and it freezes in its tracks. Now, does the bug freeze in its tracks because it's, uh, it understands, really understands the difference between your size and its size? Um, does it have some kind of capacity to understand the gap between the little nerve bundle in its head and, and the power and capacity of the human mind? Well, no, of course not. It, it responds in the presence of something so incomprehensibly larger than it is in an appropriate way. It, it freezes in its tracks, hoping that you won't notice it, or maybe it, it skitters away as fast as it can uh, when it's clear that you do notice it. How about you? How do you respond in the presence of something that's so uh, incomprehensibly larger and massive than than you are? How how do you respond? Well, this morning we're concluding our sermon series by faith. We have looked at uh, the 11th and 12th chapters of Hebrews, uh, and we're asking the question, how do we live by faith? We're told in uh, verse 6 of chapter 11, without faith it's impossible to please God, so we want to be people of faith. We, 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 we want to live by faith. So what does that look like? You know, chapter 11 begins with the, the definition of faith, which is faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. So how do we do that? You know, how do we, how do we be sure of the things that we hope to see happen? We hope to experience. How can we be sure and certain of what we can't see or isn't clear to us? And so we've been looking at the heroes of the faith in chapter 11. There's all sorts of names and people who lived by faith. They experienced adversity and hardship. Some of them, it cost them their lives, but they they were rewarded. They lived by faith, we're told. And we've been challenged about how we can do the same, how we can live by faith in our lives, in our worlds. And then last week, we saw at the start of uh, chapter 12, the first half, that the author draws an analogy between um, following Jesus and running a race and how we can then live our lives by faith. And today we come to the last half of chapter 12, and we get a glimpse of of what we do not see, or we cannot see yet, I guess. We get a glimpse into the, the, the awesome holiness of God. We get a peek at the scale of God's perfect nature. And it's hard for us to comprehend because it's so you know, far beyond us, our frame of reference. And how we respond to, to God's holiness, it, it's a crucial part of what it means to live by faith. So today we're going to be working our way through the second half of chapter 12. And before I start, uh, there's, Hebrews is just chock full of Old Testament allusions and symbolism and references. And so every once in a while as we work our way through, I'll stop and kind of give some background or maybe a, a brief kind of explanation. So let's dig in now with verse uh, 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all people and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, this is interesting because, as I said earlier, in chapter 11, we're told that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Here we're told without holiness that we won't see God. Now, at first glance, it seems to me that having faith is a lot easier than having holiness. You know, we talk about faith. We, we have faith in, in, in God and in Jesus. We, we put our faith in each other sometimes. But holiness, that just that seems pretty unattainable. But it says they both must be present for us to please God and then also to see God. So let's continue. Verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God 
and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change, though he sought the blessing with tears. So here the the author of Hebrews describes a few things that can keep us from pleasing God. He, He talks about, he writes, bitterness, it's not a comprehensive list, it's just a few examples, but bitterness, Certainly, sexual immorality. And then he says godlessness like Esau. What's, what's he mean by that? Well, Esau, as you might know, was an Old Testament guy. He was the grandson of Abraham, uh, the, the son of Isaac, and the just older twin brother, slightly by a few moments, of, of Jacob. And as the oldest son, he had been promised his, his father's inheritance, his, his blessing. Because he was hungry, though, after a long day hunting, he, he gives it up to Esau. He makes a trade. He gives Esau, or Jacob, he gives it up for a meal and, and he disrespects his father's blessing and it says that he loses it. What was his father's blessing? It wasn't just simply, you know, the physical inheritance of, you know, the, the sheep or the cattle or the land or whatever it might be. It was, it was the blessing that was meant to be passed on from generation to generation. Way back in Genesis 12 where God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you and and through your descendants, I'm going to bless the rest of the world. And, and that's what he gives up. Esau would have known that. He would have been taught that as far back as he could remember. And he treats it like it's nothing, and he, he gives it away because he's hungry. Do we, do we ever treat God's blessings like that? Trade them away for a momentary pleasure or a temporary fix for something that we think we we need and have to have? Let's keep going. Verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and terror, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am, I'm trembling with fear. Now, this, this refers back to when the people of Israel, they've escaped from, been delivered from slavery in Egypt, and they're in the desert, and, and they're gathered at the, the base of a mountain, and God descends upon this mountain, and it's, it's covered with smoke and fire, and Moses alone is, is called in to ascend the mountain to receive God's law, the Ten Commandments. You know, kind of think back to you know Charlton Heston, the scene, kind of like that, only much bigger. Can you imagine to what they must have felt? I mean, sort of like that bug and how it froze in, the, in its tracks in the presence of, of, of incomprehensible power and strength and stature. That must have been a little bit of what Moses and the Israelites must have felt. All this brilliance and this power and this massive, overwhelming presence, the smoke and the fire. Uh, it's beyond all imagining, there, there's this God. It's, and, and His holiness is displayed, just a little bit of it. You know, when we, when we say that God's holy, uh, we say that He stands apart from us, that He's different from us, that He's other than us, He's not dependent upon us. He's greater than us in you know, intelligence and, and power and beauty, but it also carries a sense of, of his superior character, his moral perfection. There's no, no evil, nothing but good and truth in God. 
And, and that's hard for us to comprehend. Uh, you know, um, back in back in Isaiah in chapter six, we get a, a we get a, a kind of a story that's helpful for us. The prophet uh, Isaiah gets gets a, a glimpse of God in heaven. And we're told that there's massive temple and it's, it's huger than anything you've seen on earth. And there's these pillars that stretch to the sky. You can't see the top of them. And, and it's glittery and, and it's blindingly brilliant and it's filled with massive creatures flying around and there's smoke. There's deafening sound. And then Isaiah says, I, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe. In other words, just the thinnest part the, of the trailing veil of God's majesty filled the whole temple. It couldn't contain just a small, very small, minuscule part of God's holiness and presence was contained. That's, that's all it could hold. And these enormous flying creatures, these impressive creatures are covering their faces because the brilliance and the beauty and the holiness of God, they can't bear to, to see it. They can't. It's too much for them to take in. And they erupt into song and they sing, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is is full of his glory. I mean, it takes all of the earth and the universe, and, and even that can't contain God's holiness and glory and presence. You know, we, we talk about God's holiness, we sing about it, but it's hard to, hard to grasp because it's beyond our categories, beyond our frame of reference as human beings. I mean, we talk about God being sufficient and loving and, and gracious and patient and, 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 and all those things in kind. We can draw upon experiences. We can kind of relate because we've known people who, who manifest, who, who are those characteristics. Not perfectly, but they, they do pretty well at them. But holiness, holiness, we, it's much harder for us to, to, to take in. And every once in a while in the Bible, uh, somebody gets a glimpse of God's holiness or, or the Holy Spirit imparts knowledge of the holy. And the response of somebody who catches such a glimpse of God is, is like the, the prophet Isaiah. He said, woe to me, I am ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips and I love, live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, which is an appropriate response I mean, to find yourself in the presence of the Holy God and, and, and you're aware of your, of your failings and your sin and your, your lack of wisdom and your poor choices and your, your lack of goodness. And, and it's like, a, like, like that roach who can carry disease, looking up at, something, at somebody who hates, who hates disease. And in that moment, you realize that human virtue, no matter how great, fails in comparison to God's holiness. And the Bible underlines that the, the response of the Holy God to, to our failures and to our sin, it's not an indulgent wink, but it's, it's, it's anger, it's righteous anger, it's, it's wrath. Unless we think that's simply the teaching of, of some hellfire Old Testament prophet, hear the words of Jesus. I tell you that you'll have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word you have spoken, for by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you'll be condemned. And then Jesus said, for the Son of Man is coming in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will repay each person according to what he or she has, has done. Now, I know that when we hear the, the wrath of God, the anger of God against sin, many of us want to change the channel, turn off the preacher, you know, or, or run for the exits, because we would much prefer to hear about and to focus on the, the God who, who loves us, the kind of a, 
you know, an indulgent, uh, kind grandfather who says, oh, don't worry about it. That's not a big deal. I'll, you know, we'll just forget about it. We'd rather focus on that than this picture of a, of a God who, who is angry about sin, this holy God who cannot stand sin. But it, it's helpful, I think, for us to, maybe this quote from James Ryan Smith will help us in regard to this. He writes, In the same way that God's love is not a silly, sappy feeling, but rather a consistent desire for the good of his people, so also the the wrath of God is not a crazed rage, but rather a consistent opposition to sin and evil. It's a mindful, objective, rational response. God is not indecisive when it comes to evil. God is fiercely and forcefully opposed to the things that destroy his people. God is against my sin because God is for me. Let's continue with verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the first, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all people, to the spirits of righteous ones made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So, context here. There's a lot of Old Testament allusions here. First, the author of Hebrews, he, he takes this mountain in the desert where Moses and the people get a glimpse of God's power and holiness, and it's overwhelming, just a glimpse of it. And he contrasts that with a different mountain, a mountain that represents heaven and God's kingdom. And at the base of this mountain, we can have a much different experience. He says, you have come to God, the judge of all people, to the spirits of righteous ones made perfect. How are they made perfect? The next phrase tells us how. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel being made a, back in the early part of the book of Genesis, has a sacrifice um, he's killed by his brother. And, and, and Jesus is, is saying here, Jesus sprinkled blood on the cross, shed for us, speaks a better word, a word of hope, a word of, of grace and love. And so we can approach God. We can be in his presence. Why? Because of Jesus. Because he's our mediator between us who fall so far short of a, of a, of a holy God in our own lives. And Jesus establishes a new covenant and he seals it with his blood shed for you and me on the cross. And what does this mean for us? What's this mean for us practically speaking in our lives? Listen to earlier in Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. How do we respond in the presence of an incomprehensibly holy and awesome God? We hold firm to our faith in Jesus. We trust in what he has done for us on the cross. We receive the grace he offers, and because of that, we can now... It says in Hebrews 4.16, approach the throne of grace with confidence. Not because we're holy, but because Jesus is. 
And because Jesus is our bridge, our mediator in the presence of a holy God. Without this, without Jesus, there is no hope. There is no hope. We would have no hope like like our bug in the presence of a being so large and powerful comparison to itself. But we have hope and our hope is, is actually tied to the holiness of God. We're told at the end of chapter 12 that our God is a consuming fire. What that means is that his holiness will consume sin and evil in the end. But in the meantime, God's holiness also purifies anyone who turns to him. That's what happened with Isaiah back in his interaction his, when he got a glimpse of God's holiness. We read, then one of the seraphs, one of those flying creatures, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. That's why we have hope. Because God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In the face, in the light of an of a incomprehensibly holy and perfect God, God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He cleanses us from sin. He makes us holy in his sight through faith in Jesus, his son. Remember how we began? Without holiness, we won't see God. Well, God wants to see us. God wants to know us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to be with him. So he makes us holy through faith in Jesus Christ. So in light of God's holiness, how do we live by faith? We turn to Jesus. We repent of our sin. We trust in him. We trust in his faithfulness to us and his love for us. And we let the Holy Spirit do its work, refine us, purify us, make us holy. Have you let God touch you that way? Do you need his purifying power in your life? If you do, then pray with me. Holy and almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires and motives are known, and from you, Lord, no secrets are hidden. Lord, you are holy, we are not. Your ways are far above our ways. Your beauty and power beyond our comprehension. Lord, touch us who humbly turn to you today with your redeeming and cleansing fire. Heal us, Lord, that we might more perfectly love you and bring glory to your holy name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want you to stand as we respond to the word we just received.